that's uh, Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based birthing <coughs> obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. Uh, this is our fireside chat number nine edition, um, non-fireside chat in Bliss's kitchen. Uh, John, our producer, is still uh, sheltering in place. LA is on lockdown again. And I'm here as usual with my best sidekick, my best buddy, one of the best midwives I know, best people I know, my friend Bliss. How you doing? Um, I'm good. I think I'm better than you. Got some rest last night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've had two great births, uh, but I have a third person in labor now, too. Before we get to that, I just want to say you can find us at, uh, at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. Yeah. And at Birthing Instincts on Instagram for me. Mm-hmm. And they can write to you at... Um, bliss, B-L-Y-S-S, at birthingbliss.com. I got rid of the hotmail. Are you proud of me? Oh, my God. Finally. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, so what are you at now? Bliss at Birthing Bliss. Oh, you have your own? <sighs> so fancy. Because I'm info at birthinginstincts.com. We're so fancy. Yeah. Speaking of fancy, you guys remember my cup last week? Stu thought it was prunes? Prunes. It was vaginas. But this one, come on, has a unicorn. Other, it says what? other midwives, really normal, and then me, the unicorn, oh, on a pole. <laughs> Stu says, yeah. sweet. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. I just heard the unicorn part. The Do you know I was fascinated with unicorns as a little girl? Doesn't surprise me. Other people were surprised. Doesn't Why? Surpri- I don't know. Why? I don't know. But I was. Loved unicorns. The magical well, part of me. Well, uh, before we get into our topics for today, which are sort of going to be shooting from the hip because uh, I have been up. I, I didn't get to bed till 4 o'clock this morning and woke up at 7 because I have another woman with ruptured membranes. I got to ask you a question. What kind of cat litter is that in your in the cat box? It's horrible, right? I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm having a problem with my with my male cat not wanting to poop in the litter box. Oh, I've been through this before with him. We're getting rid of that whole system, and I've got an extra thing, so I'll give it to you, and you can try it out. My my cousin got it. It's fancy. It's got like a drawer in the bottom, and you put these little liners in for the pee and. But my cat, my male cat, pees other places and won't pee in the box. See now that that he doesn't do except once. And I think I might have said this before, but I told him, I, I picked him up by the scruff of the neck when I when he peed on my shoe once. <laughs> and I told him the next time he does that, he'll be peeing in the San Bernardino forest. <laughs> and he hasn't done it. All by himself. And he hasn't done it since. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Good morning. So Good morning. I just wanted to know, because I'm looking for an alternative. I maybe, you know, in my, old, my old place, I had two litter boxes. Yeah. And that didn't work. Oh, I've heard Because the, the vet said you're supposed to have two litter boxes. Yeah. But, you know... How many litter boxes can you have in a small apartment? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, and then they get it. They get a, the kind of litter that I use is just the tight, tidy cats, and it's it gets stuck in their feet, and then they jump out of the litter box, and then you get little granules all over your house. So fun, yeah. But they're worth it. Okay, worth it. so I, I digress for a second because I, I saw your litter box, and I kind of <laughs> solved the litter box problem. So if anybody I solved it for you, by the way, if anybody, oh hi Sarah. Mm-hmm. If anybody um, has any suggestions for litter boxes. That's it. No one else has come up commented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, this, this is the litter box uh, podcast. <laughs> I wonder if there is such a thing. I bet, there, I bet there is. I bet there is a cat podcast. Oh, I'm sure there's lots of cat podcasts. The cat doctor. Well, you're not actually. Okay. So, you know, I didn't even get a chance to make a list today because I didn't get home till four this it's morning. It's okay. You know what I wanted to bring up is that 
when we were at the birth, we were at a birth together a couple of days ago. Um, Tell them what kind of birth. It was a booty first baby. Private breach birth. Right. Or booty first. It was lovely. I was glad to be there. Um, but we were talking about the podcast. I said, I'll see you Friday. And what did you say? Do you remember? No. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, everything that we're talking about right now just seems insignificant. Oh, I did say that. Yeah. Compared to what's happening in the world. So I really want your participation today. Those of you that are joining us, um, let us know what you want to talk about. We're here for you. So, you know, I know that you guys come to us to talk about um, birth, but, you know, if there's something else on your heart today that you really want to share or hear us talk about, let us know. Um, someone last week wanted to talk about Rogan, and you would actually, you and I just actually had a client who declined Rogan postpartum. So I thought yeah, um, you yeah. did a little bit of research. So I thought, let's just save that and talk about it in detail. And okay. then um, <laughs> well, we'll talk I, about I hope I can remember what the book. research what, what the research I read was because I'm not remembering too much of anything right now. Because you're tired. That's okay. You guys love us, right? So you'll just tell us what you want to talk about, and we'll we'll just go on the fly. So let's we can let's recap. Uh, we had a breech birth, mm-hmm. and uh, it was going great. And then we got her up to oh, the whole time the baby was really tachycardic. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. The baby's heart rate was about 180. And then at For one the point last, I came the, in and said what? It well, was, was 190 something. <laughs> I was like, mm. And then, because she was on the toilet at that point, pushing, and then the heart rate dropped into the 80s, which was, right? Yeah. 80s or 90s. One, one diesel. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was always worried because I had this happen once before where position change may have caused an occult cord prolapse. So I got into mode. I, I, I turned on my... Dr. Stu power mode. Mm-hmm. Getting this baby out. <laughs> and we got the baby out in a matter mm-hmm. of like, what, 30 seconds or something like that? Maybe a little bit Less longer. than a couple of minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seemed like 30 seconds mm-hmm. or <laughs> two hours. But yeah, and the baby needed some uh, resuscitation and Bliss has her patented Bliss kisses, which she gives to the baby. And the baby came around, did fine. It's great. I really didn't kiss the baby. I gave the baby mouth to mouth. And the baby had a little bit of a brachial plexus injury, yeah. which happens. Can you talk more about what that is? Yeah, it's when, you know, you don't know exactly when that happens. It could have been happening. It could have been why the baby was having a hard time coming down in the first place. One of the arms could have been in a funny position. Or it could have been because I facilitated the delivery. But what happens is the arm gets stretched a little bit. The shoulder, uh, the neck the neck and the head get stretched a little bit and uh, causes an injury to the nerves. But the baby had good good grasp and good forearm movement. And apparently now the shoulders Moving begin. More beginning to come back. They almost always come back. So for for those midwives of you that are on who have not seen this before, um, I'd studied it, but that was the first time I actually saw a baby. Dr. Fishbein, you know, we were resuscitating the baby. We put the pull socks on. We did all of these things. And then baby was stable. It was probably about 20 minutes before we felt really comfortable. We gave a little blow by. Um, and then <laughs> Stu says, um, Okay, so now you're placenta, and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Completely forgot that we still needed to get the placenta uh, delivered. Um, so, and then you had mentioned uh, that Celeste should try the moral reflex. Yeah, I was watching the baby laying there when you were working on it, and the baby was moving its hand, but it, but this other arm was up here like this, and this arm wasn't. Mm-hmm. For a while, it didn't have good tone at all, but then it started to get the tone back. So when we did the newborn exam, it was pretty apparent when you did the moral reflex that the one hand was up and the other one was down, but the fingers were moving. So 
I did check the clavicles and checked the shoulder and the arm to see if I could feel any broken bones and we couldn't feel anything. So we, um, we determined it was, uh, yeah. Nerve, more, more nerve damage. Yeah, right I saw, and also what was really interesting on the resuscitation too is that, you know, after 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, we did a pulse ox and the baby sat with only like 87, 88%. It should be over 90. Mm -hmm. After 10 minutes, it should be over 90. And so you, you decided, let's give it a little blow by. You gave it a little blow by for less than a minute, I think, and it, came, it went up to 94. And then you took it away and it stayed there. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm hmm. And a lot of people don't really necessarily, I mean, this is kind of an old school thing. Midwives did blow buys for babies, but you know, when you're there and you're like, okay, we've, we've done breaths, this baby is coming around. We can tell it's starting to pink up. It's starting to get tone. It was definitely having a cry. Um, so that made us feel like, you know, it was improving. Um, why not? Why not just give a little bit of oxygen? So just holding, not even a cannula, just what do you call that? Just the tubing, just tubing. Just tubing. Um, you know, a little bit away from the baby's nose and just watch the pulse ox um, respond. So, good morning. And then um, and then last night we had a really lovely birth. You uh, did? Yeah, I did. I didn't. Uh, and uh, the mother had preemptively made t-shirts for all of us. Oh my goodness. Really sweet t-shirts. What did so they say? I'll, I'll, I'll bring it next time. It, it was really cute. It was, uh, I don't want to misquote it. Oh, okay. It was really, really nice. I, I, I have it in the car. I meant to bring it in. I was going to try to wear it for the podcast, but of course, I, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> You're too tired. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard that, Patricia. Is um, blow by is when you uh, turn on our oxygen tanks with the tubing and just kind of put a little bit of oxygen just under the nose of the baby. Um, and, and we were watching the oxygenation to see if um, giving the baby a little bit of O2. Um, would help and it did yeah it was mm -hmm. brilliant we have a question um yeah. from alicia says for someone attempting a VBAC, in our experience is the labor and delivery more like that of a primip or a multip primip well it depends if a woman had labored with her first baby and got to 10 centimeters all right and then had a c-section in the point. second stage point. then it would be more like a multip but if a woman had a C-section for breach without labor or a scheduled unnecessary C-section, um, then she would be like it would be very much like a primate. So what I call them is, is someone who who's having their second baby, but they've already had one baby, but it was a C-section. Um, for the sake of terminology in my in my when I do my papers and things like that, I call it a functional primate. All right, because they really aren't a primate because primate just means that you're first pregnant for the first time, but uh, their labor is much more like, it's, it's simply, it's their first vaginal delivery, so it's the primate, which is opposed to the woman who gets section in, you know, when she's in the second stage for fetal distress or something, those people will act just like a multi, they'll go quick. Well, I'll correct my answer. I agree with you that if you've done a lot of the dilation process, your body's gonna have that muscle memory and that will probably likely go a lot faster than it did the first time, but you still have not had a vaginal delivery, so the pushing phase could be that of a first-time mom. The pushing yeah, phase. If you hadn't got, if you hadn't been in the pushing phase, yeah, so. that's correct. Thanks for asking that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please uh, um, let us know what you'd like to talk about today. Woot! I will more like a multip. <laughs> Miranda, I don't know exactly if you meant to say that. I'm not sure what that means. Um, okay, so let's talk about Rogam. Okay, what was the research that I did? <laughs>
What did I say? So someone asked us last last Trigger week my brain. about what we felt about Rodam. So the standard of care, just let us know what you normally yes. tell someone for the standard of care in terms of Rodam in uh, pregnancy. The numbers are coming back to me. So. In pregnancy, when you have an RH negative mom and a dad who's positive or a dad who's unknown. Right. Right. What's the standard of care? Yes. Well, the standard of care is to give is to if the if the mom is Rh negative, is to te te test the baby's blood type, and if the baby's blood type is postpartum. Oh, we're talking about antipartum or postpartum. Yeah, let's talk about in pregnancy. Oh, all right. Does Rh negative Rogam? Well, ideally, you'd like to find you'd like to get the blood type of the father of the baby. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now there is, from what I understand. There was a there is a blood test. I don't know if it's offered or routinely offered, like the NIPT test, which tells you the chromosomes of the baby. Mm -hmm. There is a blood test that can be done that it can determine fairly precisely what the blood type of the baby is, mm. and you can do that ahead of giving Rogam if you don't have access to the father. It's certainly a lot cheaper to just draw the father's blood. Yeah, it's about ten bucks. Right. I did it recently. Right. Mm -hmm. And then if the father's already positive, then the standard of care at 28 weeks or so, what I do generally is I first will do an antibody screen when I do my 28-week glucose test or however we do it, you know, one-hour postprandial and the CBC. I do an antibody screen on my RH negative moms because I want to know if she accidentally got sensitized during those first 28 weeks. Mm. Before you because give if Because if she's already been sensitized and giving Rogam isn't going to do you any good. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've never had a positive one, but it clinically makes sense to me that before you give a therapy for somebody that you make sure the therapy has some benefit to it. Mm -hmm. So you do that. So what I do at 28 weeks is I draw those bloods and then at the next, at the 30 week visit, if the antibody screen was negative, then I give her the Rogam at 30 weeks. Okay. Um, and that's, and that's, that's, the, that's what I, that's what's recommended. I will go through the informed consent process, but I really wasn't being as thorough as I should have been because I should have looked up this data a long time ago so that I could give people real informed consent as opposed to just informed consent that says, this is what everybody does and this is the standard. And why are we giving Rogam to an RH negative mom? Uh, because if a baby is RH positive in the mom and there happens to be a small bleed between the mother and baby called a fetal maternal bleed and some of the baby's blood gets into the mother's bloodstream, the mother immune system will, will recognize those red cells as being foreign and there'll be an immune response to that over time and they'll make antibodies to it. Mm -hmm. The antibodies can then across the placenta and they begin to attack the baby's own red cells. Now generally it doesn't attack the baby, the first baby doesn't really get that sick, sometimes mildly in excessive jaundice or something after they're born. But if that they get sensitized in a subsequent pregnancy with an RH positive baby, that baby will be attacked by the mother, and the term is the medical term for that is erythroblastosis fetalis, and it's just what it sounds like. It's not a good thing. <laughs> okay, Blast so, blastosis is never a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So the the standard of care is Rogam at 28 weeks and before 72 hours postpartum. So, as far as I know, the 28 week standard of care is newer like in the last decade or so maybe like we didn't used to give rogam at 28 weeks it was usually just uh, postpartum no i've been giving rogam oh, my have? entire career oh, okay you know for 35 years for some reason i thought it was newer maybe no. just midwives are doing it 
more regularly now. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I don't know enough about the midwife history, but mm -hmm. no, I've been we've been giving any rogam since my residency. Okay, and right. so why at twenty eight weeks? Because you're more likely to have a bleed uh, in the third trimester that is significant enough to stimulate a response. Okay. It, you take you can't just like one one fetal red cell crossing the placenta is not going to cause trigger a response. It's it's a do, it's it's dose related. But what's fascinating to me is that in a, in normal pregnancy, the placenta is this this incredible radiator where. The good things from mom's blood, like oxygen, glucose, and proteins, are being passively or actively transported or diffused into the baby's bloodstream. And the bad things in the baby's, like carbon dioxide and, and waste products, are going through the placenta into mom. And the, never the two shall mix. They don't mix. And, it, and you look at this placenta, and it's just look, it just looks like this piece of, you know, meat. Yeah, like a liver processes. And yet... All these little, there's all these little kunai and little things in there, they, and they never actually meet. Mm -hmm. But occasionally there is a there is a bleed between mom and baby. And how and, common is that? I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I thought know. that was part of the statistics no, that no. you researched. Well, I the statistics were talking about the risk of being sensitized if you don't get rogam. Okay, so let's talk but about that. But that was in labor, not so much during the antepartum period. Oh, actually, one more question before we move on to that. Right. Okay, so 28 weeks, 72 weeks, I mean 72 hours. When else should moms be um, advised to consider Rogan? Oh, well, if they have an unexplained hemorrhage, an abruption of the placenta. We used to give Rogan if we did an amniocentesis. Uh, even if we didn't go through the placenta, we would give Rogan because we're sticking a needle through and potentially causing some bleed. But amniocentesis is done so rarely now that, that you know, I'm sure that indication still exists. Um, you know, if you have a fetal surgery, which is really rare, or you have twin-twin transfusion syndrome, and you have that laser surgery they do, anytime you compromise the uterus in any way. Miscarriage? After a miscarriage, yeah, if a miscarriage is at six weeks, you probably don't need to give it, but I think it's still, if you look at the textbooks, it's still recommended. Standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like a car accident or some kind of like act well, theoretically, right? theoretically, if you suspect an abruption, you should do it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this particular client wanted to consider declining the Rogan postpartum. After the delivery, we did a Elden card mm -hmm. at the birth, which will give us the blood type of the baby. If the baby was also negative, there would have been no reason to do Rogan, but the baby was positive, and so you let her know about Yeah, it's statistics. interesting too. I think the mom was, was the mom O negative? And the dad was AB yeah. positive. Mm -hmm. So. The baby turned. The mom was O negative. The baby turned out to be A positive. I think. Or did, was it A? Whatever it was, it was positive. <laughs> but it was different because it, the statistics were interesting. They said that the risk of, of being sensitized and, and without giving Rogam was about fifteen or sixteen percent, is what I remember the number to be in that area. And then, um, if for whatever reason the, the dad's blood type was or the baby's blood type was different than the mom's blood type like the A or the B or the O, you know, the O thing, then um, the, it risk, the risk fell to only 4 to 5%. Mm -hmm. And that's because I think that the mother would then recognize the A or B, and those cells would be wiped out before the body created immune response, response to the Rh antigen. So she decided not to do it, even though her risk 
well, based on her AB, it was only four to five percent. But she decided not to do it anyway because she wasn't going to have any more kids. They think. She thinks, <laughs> and she just didn't want it. And again, the risks of giving it yeah. are very are, are very small. It's not a blood product where you can get AIDS from it or hepatitis C from it. Um, there are preservatives in it, and some people don't want that stuff put in their body when mm -hmm. they're breastfeeding or especially like the anti-rogam. A lot of women don't want that because they don't know what's in it. They don't want to put anything in their body. They, you know, their body's been a sacred vessel the entire time, <laughs> and suddenly they're, they're injecting the stuff in there that made by a pharmaceutical company, which people don't trust these days. Yeah, rightfully so. So, mm -hmm. um, right. So therefore, uh, she decided she didn't want to do it, and it's it's great. And I told her when she comes in for her six week postpartum checkup, uh, we'll probably just check an antibody screen on her mm -hmm. just to see. Because if she's antibody screen negative, then if she ever wanted to donate blood or whatever, she could do that. But if she's antibody screen positive, then she can't even donate blood uh, to a blood drive. Or right. Like that. So if someone declines the 28 week, we would do antibody screens periodically. I wouldn't. You don't. A lot of times they recommend that yeah, you do that. Yeah, I wouldn't. A few times during the pregnancy to make sure. This is my cat, Jack. <laughs> He's a very curious kitty. Um, someone, <laughs> sweet kitty. Um, someone was asking, do risks uh, begin to outweigh benefits of delayed cord clamping when mom is RH negative? No, it's completely unrelated. Can you explain why? Well, delayed cord clamping isn't an increased risk for a maternal fetal hemorrhage. Mix and mixing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Like we were talking about that system being closed. So just because the placenta is continuing to pulsate and give the baby oxygenated rich blood, it does not necessarily increase the risk of those crossing. It's more necessary. Right, so the risk the risk of declining, uh, if, you, if your baby has the same blood type as you as far as the A, B, and O, the risk of declining Rogam after a birth where you're Rh negative and the baby's Rh positive is 15 or 16% of being sensitized. So that's a fairly large risk if you're planning more children. And I probably wouldn't take that risk and I would get the Rogam because the the, the risk-benefit ratio to, to my logical mind says that the benefits far outweigh the risks. All right, so that's the way I would. Yeah, it, and I always counsel people like, you don't know. Life is very long. You might have your babies grow up and decide you want to have another baby. Like, you just don't, like that kind of thing of, of closing the door on that, be, you know, be cautious with making decisions around that because you just don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Right. After Sky passed, if I wasn't so old, I probably would have gotten pregnant. Oh. So you just don't know. Okay. That's a hug. I got, what I wanted to say when Miranda mm -hmm. says that the reason she said what she said was because she got to 10 centimeters before she had a C-section. So Miranda, you're going to dilate like a multip, but your pushing will be like a primate, which is what exactly what you said. Yeah. Um, Dula Aisha. You said, I've heard a baby's increased risk of jaundice. Are you talking about with delayed cord clamping or with RH negative moms? Let us know. Um, you also said a statistic that I thought was interesting that it's a higher risk Jesus. of... <laughs> I'll close the door. No, that's all right. Let her be. Let her be. It's a yeah, higher yeah, risk, yeah. not risk, but higher incidence of RH negative in Caucasian women. Oh yes, I didn't know that either. Yeah, there was like no, like 30%. there was no RH negativity in Japanese or uh, none, zero. Like one yeah. percent or something like that. 
Interesting, Chinese. right? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, it's... It, I don't really understand the genetics behind it, but that's... Their genetics. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the more we have mongreling of the races, though, the more that, that will, those kind of statistics won't mean much, because... Is that know, an appropriate term? Mongreling, that's the, that's the medical term for it. Just making sure. Yeah, well, you know, mixing of the races... You know, if you look at, you know, if people do 23, was it, what's the one where you, 23andMe or where you get ancestry, ancestry or whatever, mm-hmm. people are finding out, oh my God, I got some, uh, I got some Mongolian blood in me or I got some uh, Aztec blood in me or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, there are very few pure-blooded things anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to really be living an isolated life, maybe in New Guinea or something like that. Mm-hmm. I like, I like the melting pot. Yeah, it makes for beautiful people. I was just going to say, stronger beautiful immune, people. And, and stronger immune systems, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, which is why there's the in, rules against incest and all that stuff, because the genetic defects are more likely to occur. Yes. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> we digress. Yeah, all right, well, so... Um, <laughs> so then uh, Jahili says, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, the fear about the pain and labor, what do you say to people about it? We're in Mexico... There's a lot of women feel fear about. That's a good one. You can address that. Okay, I will come back to that. Oh, um, uh, the Rh negative delayed cord clamping combination affecting more possibility of jaundice. It doesn't make any cl- clinical sense to me that that would be true. Uh, it sounds like something a doctor would say, so they don't have to do delayed cord clamping. I've heard it in regards to delayed cord clamping, but you have to like also remember again. There's physiologic jaundice and there's pathologic jaundice. And so the universe, Mother Nature, would not create some a system that needed to have medical intervention. This has been, we've been having babies and procreating long, 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 long before we had medicine and doctors. Now we can save and do some really miraculous things that we weren't able to do before. But the normalcy of normal physiologic birth, we didn't have a doctor to cut and clamp and tell you what, when, how long it's been or any of that. We just left it. So sometimes babies will be a little bit yellow. And um, as long as they're nursing and they're not lethargic and they're eliminating, um, they will work that through their system. So. Yeah, and you can give them daylight and things like that. But I would yeah. I would say to Dula Aisha that that um, when a mother is O and the baby is A or B or AB, uh, well, it can't be AB. It have to be A or or B. Uh, an O an O an O type mother can't have an AB baby. That would be impossible. All right, but there is the increase of what's called ABO incompatibility, and that baby is more likely to be jaundiced if the baby is A or B and mother is O than if a mother is A and the baby's A, or the mother is A and the baby is O, okay? Because the mother has, uh, O, o type, blood type people like me, we carry, we circulate anti-A and anti-B animal, we, we carry those in our body, so, so there's more likely to be some hemolysis that occurs in a, in a baby that's born to an O, O anything mother, it could be an O, it doesn't have to be an RH thing at all, it's not an RH thing, it's an ABO incompatibility. So those babies, again, you suggest when you have that and you know it ahead of time, of course, we don't really check the blood type on a baby when the mother is RH positive. Not usually. But if we, for some reason, we know that ahead of time, uh, we, you know, just again, more sunlight, get the baby out in the sunlight, indirect or direct sunlight. And occasionally, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a bilirubin light that, that I sometimes will leave at people's houses when I suspect 
jaundice or maybe their first baby had more jaundice and so why not just be ahead of the curve mm -hmm. okay i'm gonna invest in that because you and i aren't going to be living in the same city so I'm gonna, i want to have my own billy lights well we'll look into it because you know mine's starting to get a little bit worn out so <laughs> the button has been broken, the button's been broken forever and then the uh and the pad is getting a little bit yellowed you know the vinyl, mm -hmm. whatever it is. So, in terms of um, pain, what do you what do I say about pain? So, um, that's a long conversation, and maybe we'll go more into detail. <laughs> My kitty. Maybe we'll go more into detail um, in another podcast. But in general, when a woman is supported and in a space where she feels comfortable and relaxed, she can use water. She can move around. She has people that encourage her and let her know that, that this is a normal physiologic part of the process. Um, most of those women experience the discomforts of labor differently than if she is in stress and anxiety. So if you have more tension in your body, you're going to experience more pain. So um, also in general, as a society, it's funny, I was just talking to Desi about this this morning about like, you know, as a society, we want to numb ourselves out. We want to escape. We don't want to be present to pain, whether it's grief, heartbreak, um, disappointment, things not going your way, or labor. So it's like, what is the value of being present for all that life has to offer? What is the what is the value of, of uh, having that transform you as a human being? You think that being a parent isn't painful, right? You pain like you can't you can't have joy and and <laughs> and and love without pain and sorrow. Yeah, when your it's children, not possible. Yeah, your children has a heartbreak or they move off to college or right. whatever that may be. Um, you know, it you it's a yeah. it's a process of moving across this threshold to learn how to be present for what life has. It's a um, a rites of passage. So um, does that mean that a woman can decide that during that experience, it's too intense for her, too triggering? She's got trauma, you know, um, some kind of mental health issues where walking through that process is just too intense and she deserves to have an epidural? Of course, it's a woman's right to choose. But there is something available to being present for that process. And so I have lots and lots of conversations around people to help them prepare for something that does feel unknown and not in their control and like you said earlier nature does things for a reason and i've i've, I've probably talked about this on the podcast mm -hmm. before about but why is labor painful well what's the point mm -hmm. and i you know people have heard my thing about the about the uh, hormonal cocktail mm -hmm. and you know you, you you put out hormones to help you deal with the discomfort and those hormones cross the placenta and you're communicating with your baby that way so you're reassuring your baby that everything's fine because your baby's world is changing too so people think of the of the contractions, and I like the way the fact that midwives use waves or surges and don't call it, you know, contractions or pain. Um, that it's that it's that it's part of the nature's process. There's got to be a reason for it, and if and and women can do it, and especially if you can move, if you're not restricted in, in that sort of thing. So we have we have you know our society we have this the, like you said the quick reflex to try to numb pain, all right, but in, in real in real life, all right, there's much to be achieved by, you know, no pain, no gain, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's a lot easier to sit on your couch than it is to do a hike where you have 1,500 feet elevation. But, but it you know, you, you, you get some benefit from that. 
lots of your benefit. body your body knows what to do and you know it's a societal thing and unfortunately there are people that benefit from making people fearful and whether it's in Mexico or United States or Europe or any, any place it's it's everywhere that selling fear uh, helps to control people's minds and but but pregnancy is this beautiful thing and I, this woman that I had last night I mean she was having intense contractions for I don't know it was about 20 she was in labor for about 20 hours 22 hours maybe and she did it she did it she ate she was cheerful in between when she had to be sometimes she was zoned out completely but she was able to get through this entire process um, you know in water sitting on a ball she had a doula of course which really made it helpful there was rebozoing going on and all those things so it's not something that should be feared but how do you how do you change societal you know hearsay and wives tales and rumors it's really hard to do things are passed down people say stupid things yeah really, a lot they really say stupid <laughs> things and people say really stupid things to pregnant women yeah right. yeah you know when i do my childbirth education class i tell people you've been in you've been in childbirth education for your entire life you've been hearing messages you've been seeing things in the media you know, unfortunately, we're, we don't live in villages anymore where we get to watch people give birth or people die. True. We're so detached from it that, of course, it's this unknown and it's fearful. And we and media definitely doesn't help. And the majority of people are having births in the hospital and getting epidurals. So those are the stories that you hear. Um, that's why I'm always so happy when people talk about their births, positive birth stories or that they're out of hospital birth stories, even if they're difficult, because we need to be able to, <laughs> a cat bomb, cat bomb. Um, we need to be able to kind of get back to the roots and to the beauty of all of this. I love that you talked about the hormones and that's so true. I, I, I can't believe I really skipped over that part. And, you know, a lot of the interventions interfere with that natural hormone that can come through that's almost like a pain relief. You get into this very spacey, um, almost out of body kind of trance a lot of times when you're when you're left uninterrupted, that helps you cope with the pain as well. So hope that hope that was helpful. Some follow up. Um, mm -hmm. Hannah says um, she asks, does ABO come incompatible and get worse in subsequent pregnancies? Hannah, not that I know of. Uh, uh, left untreated. Yeah, because it's not it's not a sensitivity. It's not like a, a, a transfusion between mother and baby or baby and mother. Uh, it's just so that o, o, P, o blood type people have O negative people. Have, well, O, o anything can have anti A and anti B in their system. So I don't think there's like a boosted immune response to that. I, I personally, I haven't seen it, so I'm just speculating. But that would make common sense to me that that that, that it isn't the same as being sensitized to an RH problem. Okay. Um, I have another question. Do you have another question? Mm -hmm. no? yep. Okay. So here's another question. You want to read it? I have a client that tested GBS positive about two weeks ago. She asked her OB if she could be retested and if the results came back negative, she would like to decline antibiotics. He told her even if she had four negative tests, she should still get the antibiotics because she had one positive test. This is a Kaiser OB. Can you share your thoughts on this? Why do I have thoughts on this? Okay. We have thoughts on this. Thanks okay. for asking. Well, first of all, um, the fact that, the, I mean, again, and I, and I believe it's exactly what you're saying, Jennifer, is that the doctor said she should still get antibiotics as opposed to saying, 
here are the pros and cons of antibiotics. Here's the pros and cons of not getting antibiotics. Okay. Here's the alternatives that we, we can do. Here's some homeopathic remedies we can do. Here's some things we can do if, if we give antibiotics to vaginally seed the baby. Um, these are the things. They don't even discuss that, and especially at Kaiser. Because I remember, you know, I'm not bashing the doctors at Kaiser. I'm bashing the Kaiser administration who, who runs their system on an algorithm, and everybody has exactly the same thing. And to, and, to not, and to decline antibiotics that Kaiser labels you a non-compliant patient, which is then propagated in your chart, I'm not sure that means anything. I assume that if it ever went, if there was ever something with Child Protective Services or something like that, you know, they would look at the doctor's record and say, oh, this patient's been refusing medical care and declining things, and, and it could oh. lead to all kinds of problems, <laughs> right. So, oh, you decide making decisions on your own body, that's I mean, the classic teaching crazy. is if you, if you're, because, because GBS is a transient bacteria, it comes and goes. Um, but if it's in your household and if you have a positive test, that doesn't mean it's, and you get rid of it, that it isn't going to be there. But it's probably going to be in, in a, it's, it, you're not saturated with it. And if you can get rid of it, then you, you should have the option of saying, listen, I would rather treat symptoms rather than just get antibiotics like, you know, a buckshot like we do in the United States. I would rather treat it the European way which is wait and see, is my baby tachycardic? Is, do I have a fever in labor? Have I had prolonged rupture of membranes or premature rupture of membranes? That sort of thing. Then you might want to consider it because the risk factors start to go up if you start compounding the risk factors. But to just say that every person who tests positive for GBS with antibiotics is, is, is the standard of care is to deny that there are other options. And that is what I was taught completely. Anybody with GBS should get a, should get um, uh, antibiotics. It's just like people who, if you have a herpes outbreak, and it's, and, you, and it's been less than seven days, you should have a C-section. Well, that's not necessarily true, okay? But that's the you know that's what we're taught. Well, okay. So let's let's step back a couple steps. First of all, when you hire a provider, whether it's a doctor, oh, going way back, it's whether great. it's a doctor or a midwife or whoever, you should talk to them in the beginning and say, how do you feel about X, Y, and Z? Don't ask permission. Tell them what you want. And if someone is pushing back, not comfortable, doesn't seem like they're going to respect the way that you feel then do not go either in the hospital or don't go with that provider. Choose something different for yourself. You don't have to ask permission about what you wanna do with your baby and your body. So you tell them, if I test positive, I'd like to retest and I might possibly decline antibiotics. Now, doing that in the hospital, I will, I will say, is gonna be very difficult. Um, and it depends on if you have that type of personality, um, if you feel comfortable with conflict, during labor, I mean, all of those things are not ideal. So it's it's another reason to possibly consider doing an out of hospital delivery because we really do give you true informed consent. And if you decide you want to decline antibiotics, that's completely up to you and nobody's going to shame you or make you feel uncomfortable about that. If you were ruptured for over 18 hours, we may revisit it and say, hey, by the way, you've been, you know, your bag has been open now for, you know, 20 hours. We might I, you know, how do you feel about antibiotics? Do you want to revisit that conversation? And they get, you know, you get to decide at that point. So, not, not at Kaiser. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't think you should, you should tolerate that. So the problem I'm is keep... people that have Kaiser are stuck in the system because they're stuck there. And, and you have to, you have to, argue, I mean, you're right. You do have to argue. You do have to 
put your foot down and you and then you can ask them you know, again ask them for data ask them to show you the data and come with your own data and look up your own data right? yeah if, right. if you go in with a doctor and you're advocating for yourself and you're educated and you come in and you know your stuff and and they know that you're informed it's going to be a lot different they're covering their butt so educate yourself ask questions don't ask permission tell them they're working for you so um you know, make an impact in your experience the way that you want. So that's my opinion about okay. it. Okay. Um, Hannah just said that uh, Kaiser told them that uh, her second baby was more jaundiced because of the ABO incompatibility. And my only feeling about that, it, 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 it may be true. Um, all I'm saying is that that ABO incompatibility isn't doesn't affect babies in utero. Babies with ABO incompatibility don't get erythroblastosis fatalis. They don't, you know, so it... Yeah, it's possible that afterwards it may, may have caused more jaundice, but it's not something that can't be handled easily. So it, it, it should not get to the point where baby has to get hospitalized. And especially now with, with the idea of getting portable billy lights and stuff like that, mm-hmm. we should do everything we can to keep our babies out of the hospital. And with mommy. Well, and, and right now, yeah, because, mm-hmm. because now, you, I mean, daddy couldn't come visit. And mommy may not even be able to come visit. Right. I don't even know what's going on. Right, right. That's... Another thing here in California, things are just that we've, we've regressed terribly regarding, you know, lockdowns and opening up and all that stuff. So everything's going backwards again. Um, there was a, there was a, somebody had a, uh, hi Catalina, how are you doing? <laughs> um, that one. Pregnant with twins and I hate how my provider and specialists are doing things. From, oh, this is from, uh, I'm just Janai. <laughs> Janae. Janae, sorry, Janae. <laughs> Maybe, we Maybe. don't know. Um, yeah. And she wants to do all I can do is say, all I can do is agree with agree with you. You they, should reach they, out to Doctor Fishbein. They hate how they I hate how they do things. Mm-hmm. All right, they fear twins, and they don't know statistics, and they don't give informed consent, and they and they don't know how to you know they're not taught how to deal with maybe a breach first or breach second twin, and so they they funnel everybody down the path, and they they what do they use to funnel people with? It's a four letter word, beginning with F. Fear. Right. That's why you're the best. There's other four-word word that begins with F, but that's not the one we were talking about. Right, fear. Fear's mm-hmm. just, fear's worse than the other four-letter word. Much worse. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, Reach out to Dr. Fishbein, at least to get some information about how you can advocate for yourself. Yeah, and I'm working on a paper. I'm working very slowly on a paper, but okay. it won't be out this year. But on uh, home twin birthing, what we'll, we will talk about is the reasons why we do what we do and and then we'll give some evidence to people. You got the book? Yeah, I was waiting for your sentence to be. Oh, over. I was just looking to see what else people are saying. Do you want to? We have a really good. We have a. Do really, you want to just keep taking questions until we're done? Well, I don't. I don't see any other question on my list. So yeah, you do. Where, um, where, where, where? Would a baby have antibodies against herpes if mom has it? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. I mean, it might have, if mom has tr- transient IgG antibodies, okay, I mean, if, w- once you have herpes, you have immunity for life with you have IgG, and those IgG will cross the placenta. So if you tested a baby for herpes antibodies, maybe in the first couple months of life, it might still have some of mom's circulating antibodies, but then, then those will disappear, and the baby won't have its own immunity to, to herpes unless it ever catches herpes, and then it has to do it. Right. Have you? Um, I haven't I- seen a case of herpes in active labor in my entire home birthing career, the last 10 years. 
Have you? Like a surprise? Like with yeah, somebody, or they, they, even, they did have their um, somebody prophylactic who, dose and they... Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we support the prophylactic dose at 36 weeks because um, what a shame for someone to go through the entire pregnancy, be, maybe it's her third baby, and she's 40 weeks and she gets a herpes outbreak. Mm -hmm. And then she thinks she's going into labor. So let's, we try to prevent that and mm -hmm. we can really do a good job with the suppressive therapy. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, it just, I just haven't seen it. Maybe it's the population we have on the west side over here. I don't know. Maybe. Um, Dr. Lynch on Instagram. I think I post, I, I tagged you. Anyways, he's a doctor who's, who shares a lot of our values in regards to keeping yourself healthy and getting outside and, um, using vitamins and stuff to support our system during this time of COVID. Mm -hmm. You should check him out. You guys should check him out. He's got some really great information. Sounds commonsensical to me. Very commonsensical. He interviewed a 17-year-old boy who's got asthma, who had COVID and who took his recommendations and talked about how um, he used vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, and another one that I'm not remembering right now. Um, but uh, he had a really high fever. Uh -huh. And one of his recommendations is that you don't take Tylenol and those things to suppress your fever. Why? Why would you not want to suppress your fever? In what circumstance? Well, the fever is your immune response. Your body's exactly. trying, trying to kill the, kill the invader, whatever it is. Yeah, right. your that's your body's natural response I wasn't sure to the what virus. You were I wasn't sure. You're talking <laughs> in general terms or whatever. Yes. And I was actually looking at, at and he's distracted. Yeah. It's your body's natural response to the virus. So you let the fever burn down the virus. And so within 24 hours... He was already starting to have less symptoms. So, anyways, go check him out. He's got a lot of really great information. Now, really super high those fever. Those of you that are fearful. You want to bring that down. What would be a really super high fever? 104. It was 104. Yeah. Well, we're talking about, is it grown-up? 17-year-old boy with asthma. Yeah, 17 is different than, like, four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, high fevers in children can lead to febrile, what are called febrile seizures, mm -hmm. which I've actually seen. Did I ever tell you that story? You want to tell it now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Beverly so, um, when, I, when, I, when I was married, but we, my wife and I, we took three of our kids to um, to Austria to visit her family in Austria. Mm -hmm. And on the flight home, uh, somewhere after we took off from London, uh, they made this announcement on the plane, which every doctor fears. It says... Uh, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, is there, was there a physician on board? Mm. So, me, I, I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what it was. And this happened to me a couple of times, but this was the one that's most dramatic. So, um, they, they, they come and get me, they take me up to the uh, business class section where they had brought this kid who was, who was about 15 or 16, who was having... A febrile seizure. He was essentially his his hands were clutched, and he was like, uh, and for whatever reason, I, I sort of knew about this. I don't know why I knew about this, mm -hmm. but I said we need to cool him down. Mm -hmm. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any IV stuff. So <coughs> we got ice. Yeah. We brought his temperature down, and, and what and, was his temperature? Did anybody know? No, we had no thermometer. Mm -hmm. Okay, it just felt. You could feel it. Feel really, really hot. hot. Yeah. So we brought his temperature down. He came around. We gave him lots of fluids to drink. Um, 
got him stabilized, and uh, the pilot came down. This was before 9-11. Mm-hmm. The pilot came down to thank us and asked us, you know, do we think do we need to stop? And I said, no, I think he'll be fine. Uh, we'll just keep an eye on him. We'll, he'll be fine. And, he, and I, said to, I said to the pilot, so if we were to stop, where would we stop? And he said, well, we would have to go and land at Reykjavik in Iceland. Just, uh-huh. In Iceland. So, and that would have cost the airline a freaking fortune and all that stuff. But they were really nice. And so they, they, they offered us champagne. And they offered to take me and my oldest son up to the cockpit. Oh, nice. So we got to go up to the cockpit as we flew past Greenland. Mm-hmm. And I got to look out the, the window. I mean, obviously, you're not going to do this now. Mm-hmm. So that was it's essentially the only febrile seizure of a kid I've ever had was on uh, British Airways. And he gave me his gave me his card on the back of it, which said, you know, gave me a courtesy that if ever I'm flying British Airways again, I just show it to the stewardess. Wow, you haven't used it? Well, it's no good anymore after 9-11. Because they were going to say you could go to the cockpit. Yeah, again. Oh. yeah, or you, yeah, you. Could I thought get, they were going to put you in first class. Or well, something. the thing is, they didn't move. They didn't move Sandy and the kids up to business class. They should have moved all of us up to business class because mm-hmm. there were a lot of empty seats in business class. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They did give us champagne, and they got and Max and I got to go up to the cockpit. Do you know Grant had two seizures? I don't think I knew that. Yeah, three and four. He had he had seizures, and when they when they came to take him to the hospital, because I was freaking out. The description that doctor. Well, did he have high fevers? He did not have a fever, and they they were like, "Oh yeah, it's just because he has a fever." I'm like, "He's not sick. He doesn't have a fever." Like, I think that's just kind of the assumption. So, anyways, we we did a bunch of testing, and he grew out of it. But what to what was it? Um, they call it narcoleptic epilepsy. So it's sometimes you have seizures while you're sleeping, and he had two seizures a year apart when he was sleeping with someone else that we noticed it. So he may have yeah, been no. having them. But, you know, a lot of ch- times with epilepsy, the concern is that you're going to injure yourself Dude, from the fall itself. I, 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 this is not a question you have to answer or anything mm-hmm. like that, but did, did he, like, like urinate or anything like that during a seizure? Uh, the second one at his dad's house he did. Yeah. Not, and, not were were there any other episodes in his life of bedwetting? So he probably didn't have seizures Except, oh, yeah, yeah. I except those other times, mm-hmm. because usually if you're having a seizure, a true grand mal seizure, mm-hmm. you, you like, everything kind everything of comes yeah. out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's scary, though. Right. Um, ben Lynch is great. Hannah says, Yes, Ben, thank you. I couldn't remember. He's the his MTFHR first name. Uh, doctor. He is great. I, I just think if you're feeling nervous and scared, yes, zinc was one of the things. Yes, glue, glutathione. Glu- glutathione. That's the other one. What does glutathione do for you? It helps with COVID. Oh. This is his recommendation. And there's a bunch of vitamins and glutathione. Um, Zinc is definitely one of the ones that's recommended. Anyways. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So how do you you buy glutathione? I was going to look into it. Let's look into it. Okay. Maybe Hannah Hannah will probably know because Hannah knows everything. Hannah, let us know. Yeah. Um, Yes. Thank you. And and for high fever, she's picked Advil over Tylenol because of the glutathione. So Tylenol depletes your glutathione, apparently. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff, you guys. Thanks, Hannah. All right. Um, oh, but- now you're biting me. <laughs> okay, I, have that's na- I have a naughty uh, kitty, you guys. <laughs> this is it's been sitting on my lap the whole time. <laughs> okay, you have a letter you want to read? I, I you know. I, I Let's see. I want to keep everything positive today. So I think... Uh, no, I don't really want to. Leave. I don't want to. Re- I want to read read only positive stuff today because it's been great. I've got some, you know, a pile of negative. Oh, we can do that. We did incompetent cervix last week, right? Did we? We didn't. Let's do this. Let's do preeclampsia. 
Oh, okay. All right. This is our, our storybook hour. <laughs> okay. So, um, we're going to do a preeclampsia today. It's a one-page thing. And this is what I wrote back in 2004 with an edit in 2010. So, again, I, I love doing these because it's sort of, before I was doing the home birthing world, I like to sort of see how I was thinking. Because my thinking has been an evolution. Everybody's is, hopefully. Right. So Bliss is bored. She's off getting, I'm not bored. I'm listening she's to story time. getting milk for her coffee. I'm listening to All story right. time. Your coffee must be cold or you just get more coffee. Yes. Okay. More coffee. I wish I could drink coffee. <laughs> we digress. Yeah. Okay. Uh, preeclampsia. So in the last uh, eight minutes, we're going to read about talk about preeclampsia. This condition is seen in fewer than 10% of pregnant patients and manifests itself as a classic triad of symptoms and signs, which include a rise in blood pressure, excessive swelling over your whole body, and the spilling of protein in your urine. Okay, I will say that that is the classic triad, but not, but only, you know, maybe half of the people who have preeclampsia will have the classic triad. For this reason, your blood pressure is checked and your urine is evaluated for protein on all of your visits to the doctor or midwife. Some patients who begin their pregnancy with normal blood pressures may see only a rise in the blood pressure without any other problems. This is called pregnancy-induced hypertension. Now, the terminology for all these things have changed. They're now putting pregnancy-induced hypertension on a, uh, what's it called? Where you, uh, spectrum. Spectrum, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, where you, it goes all the way to you know severe preeclampsia and then eclampsia. So they're saying that they're sort of all... One leads to the next. They're all related in some yeah, way. Yeah, I disagree. There's a vascular there's a vascular issue, maybe a genetic issue that causes people to be predisposed to that. Mm -hmm. Some of it may be nutritional, certainly a combination of genetics and nutritional. Nutrition can things. help you avoid preeclampsia. We'll talk about that. Which is why the midwifery model is so good because in the obstetric model, it's really rare for a doctor to spend any time at all talking about or re reviewing a person's eating habits. It's just not something we do. Or water or stress or sleep. exercise or sleep right um so this compare and although it may require medication and fetal surveillance like preeclampsia it's usually not as severe that is actually true hypertension is not as severe because you can you can continue it. your pregnancy that way preeclampsia mm -hmm. the treatment for preeclampsia well i let's keep reading your doctor may recommend early delivery however depending on the situation not all women who develop preeclampsia will have the classic symptoms however oh i did say that other complaints include a headache that doesn't seem to go away with Tylenol, a lowering of your platelet count, and abnormal liver function tests as shown in blood tests. No one has yet discovered the reason preeclampsia happens, but the treatment is well known and is usually dictated by how close you are to your due date. The treatment is to avoid salty foods and stay well hydrated, get more rest, being sure to lie on your side. Talk about briefly lying on your side, why that's better. The reason laying on your side is better for your blood pressure, for swelling and all that stuff is because if you lay it flat on your back, you have your uterus, your baby, when you're closer to term, you probably have eight to 15 pounds of stuff in there, depending on the size of the baby, the amount of fluid, the placenta. So that's, it's like a bowling ball, essentially, a, you know, 12 pound bowling ball. And if you're laying flat on your back, it, the bowling ball is sitting on top of your aorta and your vena cava, which run right behind your uterus. All right. Now the vena cava is a, thin walled vessel and the aorta is a thick walled vessel. I liken it to the, the hoses that you can buy, a good Home Depot hose where you bend it and the water still flows and a crappy hose that you buy where you bend it and you shut off the water. So what happens when you're laying flat on your back is you have this bowling ball sitting on these vessels, compresses the vein more than it compresses the artery. 
So you're pumping blood into your lower extremities and less of it's getting back to your heart. So your heart has to work harder to pump things well so your blood pressure will go up and you'll start to push fluid out of your veins and your arteries into your feet, which is why your feet get swollen, which is why we tell people with swollen feet or whatever to lay on their side. So briefly, okay. But not for every healthy pregnant woman to worry about it. Just saying. Oh, this takes your uterus off the large vessels that run behind it and lowers your blood pressure. Okay. It allows better blood flow through your kidneys and helps get rid of some of the fluid retention. No, I did say that. Okay, that. <laughs> the real cure for preeclampsia is delivery. That's why when the pregnancy is near term, and sometimes even if your baby is premature, your healthcare practitioner may recommend the induction of labor or a delivery by cesarean section. After you give birth, your symptoms are usually resolved quite rapidly. Also reassuring is the fact that it usually doesn't recur in subsequent pregnancies. Okay, that is true. It usually doesn't recur, but there is a higher risk of it recurring in subsequent pregnancies. Did you want to comment? Um, from a midwifery perspective, yep. um, protein is the best prevention against preeclampsia. Cat bomb again. Cat bomb. Um, so 75 to 100 grams of protein. Um, if you are borderline, so if your blood pressure is starting to go up, you're starting to spill protein in your urine, um, we would say 100 to 125 grams of protein. Um, there's a lot of herbology, acupuncture, and other things that we can do to support your liver as long as it is still borderline and not, you know, full-blown um, labs and blood pressure issues that cannot be managed. So that's one of the things that I wanted to say. It can definitely be pre prevented. Um, and we most of the time, I can get it to be turned around if we're starting to be borderline. Yeah, we, we, we see it. We see it. Uh, much less in our population now maybe maybe we're just lucky on the west side but I really do believe that it's a midwifery thing that they're, they're pay, that you're paying attention from early on about things you know and and it's not about weight I mean we don't even weigh people in our in our model nope. right so it really isn't about that but if people eat healthy they they put on as much weight or they retain water in, in a way that's probably physiologic for them mm -hmm. and uh, um, but if it gets severe, then then you have to if you if you develop this thing where it's affecting your liver or your platelets, that's called HELP syndrome, and that can lead to fetal demise. It can lead to it's very um, serious seizures mm -hmm. and all kinds of problems, potential mm -hmm. problems. And a small percentage of women who get preeclampsia or, or hypertensive pregnancy-induced hypertension will remain hypertensive or are more likely to become hypertensive when they get older. Yeah. Um, my Instagram feed is about to get cut off because we only are allowed an hour on Instagram. Um, Katie Dean 18, join us next week and I'll talk a little bit more about ways that you can increase protein. Um, I know it's hard, but you definitely can do it. Small meals throughout the day, smoothies um, can be a real great way to be able to increase your protein. Um, thank you for those of you who joined us on Instagram today. We hope that you will join us next week. Um, well, we're going to sign off on Facebook too. We're going to sign off. Because I've got so much to do today because I've been busy, so busy, busy delivering babies. You don't want to sit and puzzle? I will. I'll put one piece in and like stroke, I do. And stroke kitties? <laughs> I've been stroking kitty for 20 minutes. Uh, so listen, I'm going to sign off with everybody. I love the fact that you're here and I love the fact that we really interacted with you today and we stayed positive. We talked about stuff. We didn't really get bogged down in... Um, in, I have so many articles in here that are like, Arr. Oh, good. We kept Stu out of the err. Yeah, I didn't want to go to the err today. So, um, 
Oh, I got to go up and see my horse. My horse has laminitis again because the, the she got overfed while I was out of town. Yeah, I want right. to ride. I want to ride. Yeah, well, that's been three months now before we can ride her. So if she gets better, mm-hmm. so I'm going to go take care of her, and then uh, I'll be back uh, doing birthing tonight at some point. Bye. All right. So again, this has been Doctor Stu's uh, substitute podcast, <laughs> non fireside chats in Bliss's kitchen number I think people number like nine. Us. Tell us if you like this, and we should keep doing it. Yeah, I, I sort of do miss the old format. I know though, you Just do. sitting with the microphone. But let's see what people want. Right. <laughs> we can always turn it on and well, there you, too. You, well, you look better than I do. So, you like the way you look. And I did put on makeup for you guys today. I should have I should have worn my t-shirt in. I'll, oh, just, I'll, I'll wear it next week. <laughs> you say, I should have put on makeup. No, I'm not, I'm not, okay. <laughs> no I, I, I got, uh, you know, I look paler on TV than I do. I think you look very handsome. All right, so here's the deal. Um... You can check us out uh, at drstuespodcast.com or where, where are you now? <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> no, your website. Oh, um, birthingblisswithay.com. It's been updated. It's beautiful. Come and check it I out. Haven't, I don't think I've checked it out. And then I'm at, birthing, I'm at uh, birthinginstincts.com. And please check out my website and refer it to other people. I've got, you know, we're, we're upgrading that. We're in the process of upgrading too. So I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like yet because I haven't seen the new format, but we're going to upgrade stuff. We're going to keep all the great pictures, especially the, the, the French Bulldog. I love my that. favorite picture. It is great. So thank you guys. Uh, as I always say, we know that you have lots of things you could be doing with this hour, and the fact that you spend it with us is, is heartwarming. So we until next time, here. we'll see you uh, next week. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> bye, guys. Okay, bye-bye.